Welcome to Light Treason News, everyone. Pop culture, politics, and a sprinkle of treason. I'm joined today from the great state of Wisconsin, Meredith. Hello. Hello. Um, I would ask you how it's going, but I know how it's going. It's going um, sneaky and nefarious because you had to hide all of Little Rosie's squeak toys before we started recording. I did. I mean, I'm always here to support the intellectual and emotional health of my beautiful dog, but sometimes she just picks the most inopportune moments to bust out the squeakers. I want to be clear. On this show, we are pro-Corgi, like no other podcast in the land, but unfortunately, Rosie is trying to destroy me. I don't know why, but anytime we record an episode, I and no one has said anything, probably because it's adorable, but occasionally in episodes with Meredith, you can hear very faintly in the background squeaking. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so, always Rosie. Yeah. If it wasn't Rosie, I think we'd have some other very interesting, uh, interesting it's an adorable things. ghost, which would be a different podcast, a podcast yeah. I would love to be on. So is, yeah, she's, I'm a terrible person. Oh. So I gave Meredith homework for this episode. Wanna, I was on one of my morning insanity walks and I texted you and I was like, we should do a top 10 films of the year list and rank them. And you were very game because you and I always talk a lot about films uh, on the show anyway. So it was sort of like, yeah, that would be a nice wrap up. Um, the Oscars are coming up in a in a couple weeks, which is our Super Bowl. So we're very excited about that, obviously. But I figured that could be fun if we do our top 10 list. And listen, we're going to have very different lists. I'm just going to tell everybody up top. I don't know where you're at, Meredith, but I sort of had this issue when coming up with my list. My memory is terrible. I basically have the memory of a hummingbird in that the last thing that was directly in front of my face is probably, I would tell you, my favorite thing I've seen all year. So this sort of forced me to go back and actually think about everything I had watched and this year's been a lot. It's and I've watched a lot, so I just want to preface my top ten list by saying this is not comprehensive. It's heavily skewed uh, to America, so sorry about that. And obviously, English-speaking films. So um, preface, preface, preface. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, and because you are such a bastard and you made me do this, <laughs> you you're fucking going first. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I want to go first because I sort of feel like we're going to have like the dumb American list, which is mine. And you, your list from what I've gleaned, just because you got so excited, you couldn't stop texting me spoilers. You have a much more, I think, international view of the list, which is good, which is what I wanted. And I didn't want us to have identical lists. So um, I don't think we're at any risk of that. So let's just get into it. Because, you know, I don't want it to be the whole episode, even though everyone, once again, has been very pro this just becoming a pop culture podcast, which um, thank you. Thank you for the support. But OK, so this is our top 10 films of, of 2020 list slash early 2021, I guess. Um, so my number 10 
And I, I do have to also, <laughs> I feel like I'm just prefacing on top of prefacing, but I do also have to say, I have a couple films on my list that I wouldn't necessarily say are like my favorite films, but I admire the hell out of them for what they were doing because they were incredibly ambitious or very different. Um, unlike anything I'd, I'd seen before and I admire them for that reason. Are they something that I'm going to put on Sunday afternoon and like kick up my feet and watch? Probably not, but that's not what the list was to me. But number 10 is a great example of that, which is I'm thinking of ending things. Um, and the, the reason I put, I'm thinking of ending things on list, um, directed and written by Charlie Kaufman based on a book by, uh, Ian Reed, a book I should say that I've never met anyone who said they liked the book more than the movie. Um, everyone I've, I've spoken to who has both read the book and seen the film said the film's much better, that the the novel's almost incomprehensible. Um, but anyway, the reason I put it on the list is I really admire Charlie, Charlie Kaufman because he's one of the only filmmakers I can think of or, or I can recall who so successfully depicts how some people think. And I just happen to be one of the people who I think his neuroses sort of match up with my neuroses in, in disturbing ways, but certain things that he shows on film, I've never seen. I'm like, Oh, I, my stupid brain does that. <laughs> and I've like, it, it, it doesn't necessarily comfort me in a lot of ways. It, it puts me on edge. It makes me really uncomfortable to watch a lot of his work. Um, but I like that. I like that he taps into something so primal and neurotic in my brain that I just feel parts of my brain lighting up that don't light up when I watch non Charlie Kaufman works. Does that make sense? It does. It does make sense words. So that's why I'm putting, I'm thinking of anything things on there. Not because I was like, man, I'm enjoying myself while watching this film. I wasn't, I was really uncomfortable. Um, I found parts of it really upsetting, but again, but it was lighting up my brain in a way that no other film I saw in recent memory has, has done that for me. So I got to put it on the list, got to put it on the list. It was a unique experience. Yeah, I understand. And I mean, I think that there are a couple of, of movies on here that are not the best movies of the year, but they are some of my favorites because they were fun to watch. So I think like in it goes the other way too, where a movie wasn't necessarily enjoyable in the way that you think of, but mm -hmm. felt very powerful. So I get it. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Number 10, Meredith, hit us. Uh, number 10. All right. We're going to start right out the gate with a very, I think it's my hot take choice and the wild card. I added... Greenland, the Gerard Butler end of the world movie. <laughs> you asshole. <laughs> oh. I love that you put that on there because that was really one of, I occasionally get like a deluge of texts from Meredith and that was one of the, the causes. No. You watching Greenland with Gerard Butler. Uh, oh. That is so funny. I have a very specific reason for it because he is known at this point in time as being the star of these big, dumb, violent action movies that are involve spectacle and destruction. And 
you know, he's killing people while protecting his family or the United States or the world. Um, this movie was shockingly effective as a, like, on an emotional level. It is a disaster movie that doesn't have the big, dumb, day after tomorrow, 2012 kind of element to it. Mm-hmm. Um, he just, it, it just worked. And I was moved at the end. I was like genuinely surprised by the fact that this worked as a movie. And on that level, it was enough to put it into my top 10 because like, when do you get surprised by a Gerard Butler movie? Um, yeah, that's interesting. I I <laughs> am ashamed to say I haven't seen it yet. I got to check it out. Because yeah. that, that was not like, when you first were endorsing it, it sounded like big, dumb, fun action, which already I'm on board. But it sounds like it's actually like a good film. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say it's probably about a B film, B minus, maybe if that's you're good. feeling less interested in the, uh, like in the genre, but like, Decent performances. He's good. There's a few pieces that are like, you know, it involves like it actually manages to create the whole like, okay, you've got the kid, you've got the wife, you've got the, um, you know, the things that keep them apart. And like, they just man, I don't know. So it's an endorsement of pure competence. And frankly, there's not enough of that most of the time when you've got a cute kid and a thankless wife role at the end of the world. That's really yeah. true. I, I still believe that they should ban children from appearing in films. Um, I know that's controversial. Sorry. You're probably <laughs> like, but Allison, what if there's a, a child character? Have an adult play it. I'm not kidding. I, <laughs> I don't enjoy children in films. I think there are a handful of decent child actors. Um, but by and large, the vast majority are terrible and really take me out of whatever I'm watching and ruin the experience for me. So ban children on movie sets is what I'm saying. All right. Um, Number nine. Number nine. So much like my number 10 choice, uh, number nine, same boat, not a film that I was like, man, this is one of my favorite films of the year as I was watching it. But I've thought about it a lot since then. Kajillionaire written and directed by Miranda July. If you've ever read Miranda July's books, a lot of people, I think, very oversimplistically refer to her as a female Charlie Kaufman in that she has a real gift for tapping into our very secret neuroses and making us uncomfortable by exploring characters that are maybe not very likable or that are deeply, deeply weird and broken Um, you're not going to feel like comfortable reading Miranda July. And I actually think part of the reason that she's not as popular as say Charlie Kaufman is she's a woman doing this and a woman exploring this stuff is going to make people more uncomfortable than a man exploring this stuff because of sexism. Right. So Kajillionaire is a very weird film with deeply, deeply weird performances by Evan Rachel Wood a very charming uh, performance by Gina Rodriguez because she's like the one quote unquote normal character in the film. Um, But this is a film about really deeply unlikable people, either unlikable or very, very broken people to the point that it's uncomfortable to watch them on screen because they're so awkward. Um, 
but it's also really funny and really profound. And there's a moment in the film that I won't spoil for everyone where it because, becomes something entirely different in a really unexpected way that that moment was when I was like, oh, this is very special. This movie is very special. So number nine, Kajillionaire. Yeah. Um, all right. Nine, number nine is uh, probably an indication of why we're going to have very different lists. Uh, <laughs> that is the place that I landed for Sound of Metal. Um, ah, okay. That is my number five. Yeah. So I have it a little bit further down. Uh, but, um, and I think we're going to end up agreeing on a lot of things because we talked about how, how beautiful it was. I just thought it was, uh, the performances are amazing. Riz Ahmed is exactly as wonderful as you, uh, you know, have heard and gives an incredible performance. He's a fantastic actor. Uh, Olivia Cook, his, the uh, actress who plays his girlfriend is also wonderful in her role. And Paul Racy, who's nominated for best supporting actor this year is also fantastic and it's a it's not a huge movie in terms of what it's trying to do and its scope but I think it's just beautifully done and really tight and this like technically it's incredible too because they actually do use sound design Mm -hmm. in ways to represent um the experience of of becoming deaf and it it's just great really an excellent excellent movie I'm glad that it got a lot of attention. Yeah, Paul, I mean, Paul Racy, that was what I texted you about after I watched it, where I was just like, man, Paul Racy. Like, usually in award season, there are the usual uh, contenders, you know, the usual suspects of, you know, oh, so-and-so is Francis McDormand is in Nomadland. You know Francis McDormand is going to yeah. get nominated for an Oscar. It's going to be a great performance. But there are always those usual suspects, you know. But Paul Racy, first of all, who the hell is Paul Racy? Um, but then also, you know, Sound of Metal was a smaller film. And he really just surprised the hell out of me with this wonderful performance. And that was really refreshing because he's also, you know, an older actor, um, in the, the latter stages of his career. So it's been really nice to see him so lauded for this really, really great and also subtle performance. I feel like sometimes actors like Joaquin Phoenix have conditioned us to believe best acting is most acting. Yeah. And I, I find Paul really restrained in all of his scenes and that's what makes it magical because he just seems like a dude trying to help and have a conversation, (laughs) which is what he's supposed to be doing in that moment. But it's not, over the top, it's not showy, it's incredibly disciplined, um, restrained, and beautiful. And the scenes with him and Riz are just captivating. Yeah, um, I mean, here's an example of how a movie can be great when you just have two actors giving each other their best. Yes. And, and that, like, it doesn't have to be a spectacle, it doesn't have to be a historical epic, like, great cinema is relationships. Yeah, exactly. And and great scenes can be two compelling characters just talking in a room. Those are my favorite scenes, just people in a room hashing it out, you know. Um, I find Sound of Metal to be a really meditative film, too. I think the really beautiful message of it is uh, Riz's character is so consumed with getting back to quote-unquote normal that he doesn't realize he's not broken and he's actually stumbled upon this beautiful community of other 
hearing impaired people who are dealing with their situation in really creative, beautiful, wonderful ways and have created this wonderful community that he is missing out on because he's so consumed with getting back to quote unquote normal when no one is actually quote unquote normal, you know? Hmm. Um, what I wonder what a movie about accepting that reality is different now <laughs> beauty in it and in the relationships that you forged. Wonder what that might give us. I wonder why this tapped into my psyche in a really vulnerable way. I have no idea. I'll figure it out though. I'll figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so number eight, are we on number eight? Yeah. Number yeah. Eight. My number eight, Palm Springs. Uh, this was a great, speaking of the, the lockdown and the pandemic, <laughs> this was a really surprising film that came out at the start of lockdown. It was one of, as far as I can recall, one of the first, films that was uh, streaming that everybody was watching that everybody was recommending their friends and family watch um, directed by Max uh, Barbacow written by Andy uh, Ciara and Max um, and I, I don't know if I need to say spoilers at this point because it's been out a while but just on the off chance that you haven't seen it yet maybe skip ahead a few seconds or skip ahead to the music cue if you don't want palm springs spoiled at this point but it is a groundhog's day type situation um andy samberg's uh character is reliving the same day over and over again but what makes it different is there's other characters who are also stuck in the loop with him so uh kristen miliati who plays sarah is stuck in the loop. J.K. Simmons, who plays Roy, also stuck in the loop. And what I love about Palm Springs is it's a comedy, and I think comedies in general are underrepresented, not just at fancy schmancy events like the Oscars, but on a lot of critics' top 10 lists, they tend to leave off comedies. But I think Palm Springs is an overall really good film. Um, it's got a great story. It's got great characters, great performances. It's a solid movie. And it's also really funny. And I think it came out at a time when we all needed a very, very funny movie to watch. And man, Andy Samberg has just grown on me so much over the years as a performer, as someone who um, I think delivers a kind of loving comedy that's really beautiful. He doesn't punch down. Um he, I don't know, in my mind, he sort of embodies the real spirit of true comedy, which is poking fun at our own behavior, but never punching down. Yeah, and I think that's true. And, and we've seen in other movies that he's made that he and his, his peeps can make spectacular and joyful uh, stuff. And it's great that he was in that. Uh, Palm Springs was on my, uh, like, just missed my top 10 list, I would say. Ah, nice. My thing. Um, so I, I appreciate that you know, you put in there, I'm less concerned with having comedy in my list. And so that's probably why I did. <laughs> yeah, for sure. for sure. <laughs> and again, I'm glad that we don't have identical lists. So but I'm glad it, it made the long list. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so for me, number eight was Possessor by Brendan Cronenberg. Ooh, my number six. Ooh, uh, this is just one of the weirdest, like, you know, obviously, he's the son of 
David Cronenberg, legendary director who's made so many strange body horror films and dealing with technology and alienation hits both of those themes really hard. I think we talked about this on the sh like this together on the show when it we first watched it. Um, it's just visually stunning. It's upsetting, like really upsetting in ways. Yeah, like not in a way that we're like using kid mittens like I when I offer it as a recommendation to people I have to be like look me in the eye I'm telling you this right now it is very upsetting <laughs> yeah. The imagery. And, yeah but not because it's violent or there's any none of the things like it genuinely just gets under your skin mm. because it forces you to I mean it, it just forces you into a really weird mental place because of like as it's telling a story about people who can literally go into another person's consciousness and then like turn those subjects into puppets. So can we talk about yeah. Christopher Abbott? <laughs> yes. Also, I think it's worth putting, yeah, having this on the list because, you know, when he was Charlie on girls nine years ago, I had absolutely no idea that he was going to consistently show up in fantastic movies doing really, really interesting acting. You know, I th I thought that too. I, th I do think Lena Dunham, guys, are you sitting down? I'm about to praise Lena Dunham. I think she's really, really good at casting men who have this dark undercurrent to them and that do have these interesting layers that they never get to explore necessarily on girls. But like, I'm thinking of Adam Driver, obviously. Yeah, well, and let's not forget Riz Ahmed also on girls. Oh shit, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I do think she sees something like deep in them and is like, you're interesting. Mm -hmm. And then they go on and they do like amazing. I mean, Christopher Abbott is on a tear right now. Absolutely. I mean, and, and to put him and Andrea Riseborough together, the way that they operate, it's just, it's worth seeking out. I think that the, there wasn't, there's an uncut version that you can rent. And then there's the theatrical version, which I think is available for free on Hulu right now. Um, we watched the uncut version, but I have revisited the theatrical cut and it's, they're both worth checking out. So depending on whether you want to spend the money, but I'm looking forward to what happened, like what comes next from young Cronenberg because of what he managed to do here. That's uh, Meredith Clark endorsing nepotism on Light Trees and News. Yep, that's me. <laughs> me too. I mean, it was uh, my number six. So number seven, sticking with the comedy theme, I got to give it up for Barb and Star. Uh, full name... Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar, uh, directed by Josh Greenbaum, written by uh, Annie Mumolo and Kristen Wiig. They have been longtime, longtime writing partners. And man, this was just a fucking delight. It is such a weird movie. I've recommended it already on Light Trees and News. But it truly could have been shot as a Muppet film and there would have been no difference. It is just off the walls, wacky, stupid fun. A spectacular supporting performance by Jamie Dornan, who you know as every psychopath in every film you've ever seen. <laughs> um, not usually a comedy guy, but he's so game in this movie. 
and is so delightful. And um, many people might not know this, but used to be a musician, used to be a singer, and he gets to sing and he gets to dance in this film and he's wonderful. Um, and it's just, again, if you are feeling very heavy right now, if you're feeling very sad, not many pure comedies like this, like even Palm Springs has uh, quite a bit of like drama and sadness to it, I, I would say. Um, but Barb and Star truly, truly is a pure comedy. We so rarely get those. It's such a delight, let alone one that was written and starring women and like older women. Um, and again, older women in Hollywood is anybody over 30, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, these are two comedic actresses who have been around a minute and it's just wonderful to see them in the leads and they're having so much fun. And I had so much fun watching it. And I was so excited to just watch it again the next day, which almost never happens for me. So do check out Barb and Star if you can. Yeah. Um, so my number seven uh, is Another Round, which is a Danish movie. Uh, oh, okay, yes. That's nominated for, it is nominated for Best Foreign Language Film and uh, starring the god Mads Mikkelsen. Um, the basic this premise, was also on my long list, but didn't quite make it. So I'm so yeah. glad you have it on your list. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, for a couple of different reasons, you know, first of all, you know, I will watch Mads Mikkelsen in anything. And I'm reminded of this one time I walked by a furniture store in Copenhagen and the furniture store was nothing but mid-century modern style stuff. And they were, one of the televisions was just playing an episode of Hannibal. What? Do you think they play that? That's like their national broadcasting system alert. <laughs> just like an episode of Hannibal comes on. <laughs> it's like, okay, they just have a, there's just a one, like a sort of super cut of mad stuff. That, <laughs> just like, his it scenes. Is, it's the DVD that comes to play on all the televisions. But, uh, you know, if you haven't heard about this, it is uh, Mads and a group of his friends, they're all middle-aged men living in Denmark, decide that the best way to live through, like get through modern middle age on we is to keep a low level drunkenness at all times. <laughs> um, See, what I didn't know about the film is like when I first heard what it was about, I thought it was going to be this like really heavy, dark exploration of alcoholism. And, and there are parts that are quite sad and quite heavy like that, but it's also extremely light and funny for, for large parts of this film. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's like quite a comedy and also like, Again, I guess spoiler alert. But if you if you're familiar with Matt's history, he's a gymnast and a dancer, and he comes from a family of dancers. And you do get to see him move around at uh, you know one point, and it is like that for me made the whole film like made it into my top ten because like I just couldn't have been more delighted to have the chance to see him like in a movie. It was like a lot of his film output from Denmark is really dark stuff where he's a very like Christ-like figure that's always suffering unjust punishments for, for things or, or just, you know, existence. So actually having the chance to laugh and see him be joyful when he's such a famous sort of menacing presence was, was really nice too. He's one of those actors where he can be charged with having to feel six different things in a film and he's able to convey those six emotions in complete silence. Yes. And it's amazing to watch him work, how subtle it is. Um, but he can also be really big and, and vibrant and fun. And yeah, the ending of another round slaps. 
Like, <laughs> even if you are watching it and you're not enjoying it, just get to the end. Just get to the end, and it is a good fucking time. Yeah. Possibly, um, that's possibly my favorite ending in a film of... Oh, uh, the whole time I had the biggest smile on my face, and I knew what was going to happen. I had it spoiled for me, and I was still like, oh, this is great. Um, so my number six is Possessor. We already hit on that. What's your number six? My number six, uh, keeping it with foreign language stuff, uh, Martin Eden. The uh, It's an Italian film based on a 1909 Buildings Roman, like, coming-of-age novel by Jack London, so it transfers a typical Jack London coming of age tale into uh, the context of Italian proletariat revolution. Mm. And uh, it's a beautiful film. I, again, and like maybe this is just a sign that 2020 was a very horny year of like frustration <laughs> because the star of this movie plays the titular character. Luca Marinelli, who you might recognize from his role in The Old Guard. He plays one of- Oh, so hot, so hot. Yes, so he is a young man who strives to become an artist, who wants to be an artist and wants to live a sort of higher life and aspires to something different, experiences a political awakening and then has to sort of essentially suffer. So this is, uh, it's just, it's a, you know, it's an epic film. It's as close to like, a typical like fancy schmancy big picture uh, movie as I have on my list since I guess a lot of them are sort of smaller smaller stories it just it has all of the beautiful sweeping epic stuff it's beautifully shot he's incredible it's like he's it's just incredible to watch Luca Marinelli be this character um, and I just can't recommend it enough if you are the kind of person who thinks that Jack London maybe wrote a little bit too much about the Alaska and you were more interested in seeing some of those themes explored in a place that wasn't quite as much about like building fires in the woods. <laughs> Love it. Um, my number five was Sound of Metal. Meredith, number five. This is where I ended up... This is where I ended up uh, putting Minari. Okay, uh, that's my number four. Ooh, this is so You confusing. keep scooping me. You keep hey. scooping me. I know, but I also keep putting them a little bit lower. So I'm interested, like, where we've got the different... Yeah, what the, the top slots are yeah. reserved for, yeah. So, I mean, this movie just had me crying from start to finish. It's such a beautiful family drama. It's such a beautiful story of trying to establish yourself when it feels like all of circumstances are against you. It's got, I mean, this is the exception that proves the rule that children should not be allowed to be in movies because- Oh, you got me because of Alan. Yes, okay. Yeah. So my one exception to the rule, Alan Kim can be in films. Nobody else, just Alan Kim. <laughs> because, you know, for like, he's six or seven years old when they were filming and what, just what a joy and delight and open sweetness and the way that he interacts with the characters and also with uh, the actress that plays his grandmother. There's just so much love and warmth there that it's just a beautiful triumph. And let's, you know, we, Stephen Yoon, what else can you say than he's going to win an Oscar sometime, hopefully in the very near future, because God, he is just a spectacular actor and he should be in everything 
and he's just wonderful. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Yejung Yang is, is the grandmother in Minari and she is one of the fan favorites, um, in, in this award season, uh, the, uh, the film directed by Lee Isaac Chung written by Lee as well. And I am starting to wonder if Minari is going to be, uh, this year's parasite in that it might stun everybody by, by how they do at the award, uh, at the Oscars, because it seems to be gaining momentum as we go along. Yeah. And I, I would have no problem with that. And yep. This is one of those, you know, also recognize that there is the, st- the stupid politics of of the Oscars. And so you see the Academy picking something that makes them feel good about racism in something like Green Book, but then picking Parasite. And I often wonder what amount of sort of guilt and a sense of like wanting to do the right quote unquote thing makes, uh, like leads people to make some of these choices. I do not care what the motivations are for people who decide to vote for this movie or for the actors for any any of the awards that it's nominated for because every single person who is in the film and is involved with the film deserves accolades and deserves the chance to make more movies with the you know and if you know get the help that getting an oscar would would give so i'm i'm rooting for them for sure well yeah let's remember too that uh the parasite upset was the first year we really got to see the full effect of the the demographics shift uh, at the academy the academy made this really big push to have a younger more diverse voters so i mean we'll see you know we we need a larger sampling to have uh, a better idea of the data but um yeah i mean let's see how minari does i think that'll be a, a indication this year of how serious the academy was about being more inclusive well, so also, as, yeah oh i was gonna say i think this is also a, a situation where because everybody had to stay home for the last year a movie like minari might have a better chance because it's the kind of movie that you can watch and feel the full punch of sitting at home watching versus right, right. like a movie that overwhelms your senses and kind of creates the big spectacle. Yeah. Yeah. I really enjoyed watching Minari at home and I, I do wonder how different the experience would have been in a, uh, seeing it on a big screen. Um, but as I said, my number four Minari, uh, Meredith, your number four. Okay. Uh, here's another one that kind of comes out. Uh, I decided that this is where blood quantum gets to live. Oh, yes. Okay. I'm so glad this made your list. Yes. Um, now, a couple movies I imagine are in your top, top, top uh, are ones that made my long list because I wanted to make room for a couple of other ones that, uh, you know, let's, they're all in four languages. But uh, yes, Blood Quantum, the Canadian First Nations zombie apocalypse movie uh, nominated for many, many, many Canadian screen awards. So essentially it's the most, I think it's the most nominated film at the Canadian version of the Oscars. And Jeff Barnaby, just a cool dude who was nice and talk, nice enough to talk to us when we discovered this movie back in August. And I still think everybody should see it because it's one of the most original takes on this genre and it just works. Smart, good performances. 
interesting, you know, choices made and it was a huge labor of love. So I think it, it belongs on my list for all those reasons. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and smart, uh, from a, vantage point of of native peoples um who if, if you know anything about the horror genre native peoples uh, do get portrayed in horror films but it's always in a very stereotyped one-dimensional offensive way in that this white family has built their home on a native american burial ground and now a bunch of scary native american spirits are ruining their good time <laughs> basically <laughs> And Blood Quantum is so interesting because obviously it is from the perspective of Native peoples and it flips that whole sort of genre um, on its head and zombies, if that makes sense. (laughs) Um, It's so fun and it's it's fun and it's smart without being after school, especially, you know, uh, at no point did I feel like you know, uh, now really let's get serious. And Jeff was like spinning his chair around so he could straddle it and be like, Hey kids, this is an important lesson I'm teaching you. You know, it's so fun. And, um, yeah, it's, it's really well done. And it, it, I'm so impressed by how they did it on, I don't want to say like a shoestring budget, but you know, we're not talking like Marvel dollars here. Well, but I think he even told us that the amount, it took them an enormous amount of time to finish the movie because they kept having to get more funding. Like they kept running up against this, you know, okay, they're still, they were, you know, it was a real labor of love to adapt the short film that inspired it into a full length feature. And it looks fantastic for the fact that they had to do it on such, with such limited resources. Yeah, completely agree. So my number three is Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, Meredith and I have already reviewed this film on a prior episode, um, directed by Shaka King, written by Will Burson and Shaka, uh, starring Daniel Kaluuya, Lakeith Stanfield, Jesse Plemons. Great performances. Uh, Meredith and I, you know, we we dissected the film a little bit when we first reviewed it, um, talking, of course, about how we loved it and the performances are great and all of that stuff. Um, but also we had quibbles with it as well in that um, Fred Hampton, for example, was much younger um, than, than Daniel Kaluuya. And we thought that was an important thing to acknowledge, to remember how very young Fred Hampton was. Um, when he was assassinated. Um, Dominique Fishback plays Deborah Johnson in the film. And for me, she was, um, you know, much like Paul in Sound of Metal, uh, this wonderful, surprising jewel of a performance. I was, of course, prepared for Daniel and Lakeith and Jesse to absolutely murder their parts and, um, you know, deliver the usual spectacular performances. Um, but I was, unfortunately, due to my own ignorance, not informed about Dominique Fishback and how wonderful she is. So she really surprised me. And um, I I really loved her performance. I thought it was really, really beautiful. I'm so excited to see her in other stuff. But I I think Shaka King did an amazing job directing this film. It's a really thrilling watch. Um, It could have been very formulaic in a lot of ways, our our usual sort of like biopic film um, where you can sort of predict the beats of what's going to happen. But, um, yeah, Shaka just has a very unique eye and surprised me uh, consistently throughout this film. Yeah. 
And I'm going to say right now, I this ended up not on my on my short list because I made a point of trying to pull in some of the movies that weren't in English that I felt were really important for people to see. And I think that this is going to get a lot of like it's already gotten a lot of attention. It is truly spectacular. And frankly, yes, I probably should have put it on the list other than Greenland. But um, you don't need my recommendation to go check out a really powerful you know, important story. So it's on everybody's top 10 list. You've heard it, but it's, it's on everybody's list for a reason. Like it really yeah. is. Absolutely. And I also, and I, it feels very, um, of the times and sort of like a response to a green book era, <laughs> where, you know, like, I don't know if this film would have gotten made five years ago, you know, so that feels very exciting as well. Um, yeah. Dr. King has, spoken of of what he calls the black excellence industrial complex yeah uh, which is how he describes the experience of reaching a certain level of achievement and then trying to tell stories like this and what constraints that ends up putting on black filmmakers because they're expected to do certain things it still gives them constraints and puts them into a box of what they're supposed to do and that the experience of getting he would never have been able to make Judas and the Black Messiah if he hadn't been operating in that already, but that it was still even very difficult to, to push things this far. So um, the and then how essentially Ryan Coogler is, you know, the the poster boy for this, you know, this concept. I thought he's spoken of it in a couple of interviews, and I thought that was a really interesting um, identification of of what we've been seeing as we've actually watched filmmakers who've been excluded from Hollywood actually make their way in. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, So number three. My number three, First Cow. Okay, spoiler, spoiler alert. That is my number one. Ooh, well, that does not surprise me since I know exactly how much you loved it. Uh, (laughs) And how it's haunted my every waking moment since then. Yes, well, I mean... Who would have thought that the story of a uh, an immigrant, you know, a couple of, of people, a couple of dudes in the Pacific Northwest baking shit would have such power and and beauty? But goddamn, like Kelly Reichardt is the absolute greatest of all time when it comes to creating movies that are about, you know relationships between two people and especially within the context of of the frontier of some way I mean she just gets something so right and understands how to place stories in nature in a way that really stuns me she just makes beautiful fucking films I don't know I could probably find a way to put every single one of her movies on a top 100 list if I was making a list of my favorite films ever Yeah, like, if I'm going to be completely real with you, so the way First Cow opens, so if you haven't seen First Cow yet, let me just brace you. Um, Alia Shawcat is in the the opening scene, and you'll think, did I put on the wrong movie? Uh, You didn't. It's going to be okay. Just embrace Alia Shawcat. Like, what a wonderful cherry on your Sunday, you know? Now you get to watch uh, her be amazing. But there is an opening scene in First Cow where Kelly just tracks the very slow passage of an enormous cargo ship. And 
when I was watching that scene, I was like, oh my God, is this going to be one of those like pretentious, agonizing to watch art house films that just feels like it's five hours long when it's like an hour and 40 minutes. And it's not at all. Um, it's, it's a wonderful film, but those two things like were very jarring to me when they like, (laughs) I wasn't prepared for it to open in like modern day. And then to see a very patient, slow moving freight ship go past. But this movie is the shit. It is a love letter to beta males, which you almost never see. Um, and I don't mean that in a disparaging way. Like I think, uh, John Magaro, and uh, um, Orion, Orion Lee do uh, an amazing job portraying these men in a very loving, tender way. I, you just fall in love with their friendship. Like I could have watched them for hours and hours, just like tidy up their little shack, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's the, it's the beauty of, um, of course, the best filmmaker telling stories of about masculinity and about the ways that typical ideas of masculinity are toxic via healthy friendships <laughs> is I mean of course it's a woman and of course it's Kelly Reichardt I mean to to show that like it's important to build these connections and I love I just love 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 loved watching First Cow it made me so happy yeah, it, it is such a commentary on the history of, of, of Western cinema, too, and, and how we tell those, like, Western stories about pioneers and manly men. Like, there there really is a scene in First Cow where a dude, they're in a bar, and a dude just hands Cookie, uh, one of the, Cookie and King Lou are our two main protagonists. They're the friends, our, our beta kings. And this dude just hands Cookie a baby and then gets into a full bar fight. So the men that we're watching aren't in the bar fight, but are trying to, like, take care of a baby. And that is sort of the entire film, where it's like, these are two men who enjoy baking sweets and keeping a tidy home. And uh, we'll watch your baby if you want to get into a quick bar fight. And are just trying to make it in America, and they're not the 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 quote unquote heroes that we're used to watching. And it feels like, especially now when we're talking a lot about like toxic masculinity and incels, and you know this like really like toxic online culture of men who hate women and who are like so consumed with being alphas and you know chads and stuff like that. It feels really important to watch Cookie and King Lou just have this really wonderful, tender friendship. And I have thought about the final scene of this movie, no lie, every single day since I've seen it. Yeah, yep, doesn't surprise me. Um... Oh, by the way, just so you're not stressing about time, I'm making an executive decision right now. We're just doing our top 10 list for this episode. Oh, amazing, I love it. Uh, Okay, so that was your number one, that was my number three. Uh, So number two, uh, for me, is Promising Young Woman. Nice, nice. That Speaking is- of another film that's on every single top 10 list, but I, the reason I'm putting it on here is it is another film that feels very of the moment. Um, everybody is talking about it, whether you liked it or you hated it. Um, written and directed, of course, by the great uh, Emerald Fennell, 
starring Carrie Mulligan, uh, Bo Burnham, Alison Brie, a lot of very, very funny comedy people in supporting uh, uh, parts. And by now, I'm sure you know the gist of it if you don't know the full full plot, but it is about a woman who is very traumatized by an event in her past where a dear friend of hers um, was raped at a party and uh, the dudes filmed it and posted it and um, ultimately drove her friend to die by suicide. And now she is taking her revenge on men who prey on young women in bars, take them home when they're far too drunk to consent to sex. And this is where the film sort of like, I was texting Meredith while I was watching it, where I was like, and then does she just like lecture them? And then she leaves? Cause she's not like killing people. Right. Which is um, one of the criticisms and, and this is my, this was my number one, by the way. So, oh, okay. um, which, although maybe that's not so surprising, uh, I find it, I found it more interesting that it wasn't about violence and uh, because that is, you know, the typical revenge, like female revenge movie is about a, a protagonist unleashing, you know, physical violence and, and retribution that I guess, according to the logic of these movies, is beyond what was done to her. Um, at least that's always what I feel like it kind of is implied when they, when, when this stuff happens where they say, oh, you thought that what you did to me was bad here, you know, let me show you. And I thought, um, this was interesting, but also I just, I thought it was dark and mean and candy colored and while being, yeah, while being candy colored, I thought Carrie Mulligan was fantastic. I just liked watching a movie where I was like, oh God, these people are all bad. Even yeah, bad. And yeah, I thought it was interesting because I was really interested by this film, so I started consuming like every interview Emerald did. Um, and her, she thought incredibly deeply about this film. Anybody who's saying that, like, oh, she must not have considered that very carefully, and she did. She absolutely did. After hearing her talk about it, I can assure you, this woman thought about this film from every imaginable angle. So if you disagree with her, you just disagree with her. But nothing in the film happened because Emerald wasn't thinking carefully about it. Right. But part of the reason she didn't have Carrie's character inflict some kind of physical violence on men is she was like, nine times out of ten, if a woman gets into a physical fight with a man, he will overpower and kill her. Which, again, spoiler, so skip mm. if you haven't seen Promising Young Woman yet, but again, it's been out a while, so I think we can we can talk about it. But spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. Um, that is exactly what happens in the film. Um, she ultimately is overpowered, and she is killed in a horrible way, like a way that really, really shocked me. She, she slowly suffocated. Yeah. Um, and, and Emerald shows it in real time, it happening. So you see the life go out of this woman's body. Uh, and it's really powerful. And I'm so, I go back and forth about this film because, and I put it, you know, in my number two spot because it is really well done and it sparked this conversation, um, that we're all still having. And I've thought about it 
every day since I've seen it, which shows it's effective. But originally how Emerald was going to end this film was um, the the two men who she she goes to a, a, a bachelor, a bachelor party and uh, is pretending to be like the sexy nurse stripper. And <clears throat> she I think her original plan is she's going to like carve her friend's name into the guy's chest. And the yep. guy plan is, is the, the man who raped her friend. Yeah. Um, and he gets loose, he overpowers her, and he kills her. So then he, and along with his best man, bury her in the woods. And Emerald wanted that to be the final scene. Because she was like, to me, that's how a story of revenge, where the person seeking revenge is a woman, would end. And I thought that would have been so powerful. And then everything that happens after that moment feels very studio notes to me. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I I enjoyed for a movie that has that does what it does. I'm okay with the the fact that they tacked it on a little, you know, tacked that ending on, if only because I'd have been pretty blown away by the original ending, but I just don't know how much space I have in my life anymore for movies that that decide to end with that kind of a gut punch. Like mm-hmm. I'm not 18 anymore. So I'm not sitting around being like, I definitely want to see dancer in the dark and Requiem for a dream in the same week. Like I don't, I can't live that darkly anymore. And I think the reality, the, the realism of it, as far as being true to life aside, I, I, I can accept it. You know what I mean? Like I can, I rest- guess my, my, you know what my issue with it though is, it's mm-hmm. like, am I supposed to feel happy when the cops show up? <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that a lot of people have made that point, and I think it's yeah. Um, I just don't find like, what's the scene after that? Do you know what I mean? Like, where it's like, okay, they got the baddies because all the the bad dudes are at the wedding at the end, which is why they're all there, hence the the bachelor party. Um, and they get taken away by the cops. I'm like, uh huh. And then I I guess I'm just supposed to feel happy where it's like, okay. So well, the men who did nothing to stop the rape from happening and now her poor friend is dead show up to arrest these guys. And then, like, of course, we we all know what would probably happen after that. Right. Like they'd cut a deal or the jury yeah. would say you're you're promising young men, which is what the title of the film is based on, you know. Um, well, and, and I think that like my the fact that I assumed that they would end up getting away with it afterwards, like mm-hmm. I I choose to read it as a moment of like a brief respite from the exact reality that we were just forced to live through where she's killed instead of being able to get her revenge that you can take that moment and say, Oh, thank God, at least they got caught knowing full well that afterwards they would end up like the things we would once like, we'd go back to being denied a sense of catharsis or justice. Um, but I also think that like, you shouldn't have to necessarily do that amount of thinking when you're well that's to- the thing like it's a, to ask emerald to like address all of this in a single film is a little like and to have the film be like coherent and good still is a little like okay so like i understand taking the shortcuts and artistic merit and all of that but hearing her talk about what her original intent for the film was i'm like oh that original ending was would have serviced what she was trying to convey the best i yeah. think 
Yeah. But I also understand why people were like, Jesus Christ, give us something at the end. I want to, these are bad men. I think the turn with Bo Burnham's character is like, you, you can see it from a mile away, right? But it's still yeah. devastating when it happens. Because right. it's and like, I- oh, him too. And for Emerald, she's like, him especially. That's especially who I'm talking about. The guy who you think you're safe with. Him too. Yeah. And like, that is, to me, again, was part of her original intent. And that is preserved in the film. And it is devastating when it happens. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that's one of the things, seeing as I still am on a group text with a bunch of women who saw the movie and find reasons to mention it, like we, it's still active because we keep having moments where we think, oh, this is something that reminds me. Another thing that pisses me off, like <laughs> it's now turned into a, like, there's another reason why men are the worst and you can't trust any of them. Um, the, there was something so deeply cathartic about watching a movie that actually says, oh no, they're all bad. You can yes. go away. And I, yeah. I recognize that that's not necessarily the indicator of like a perfect film, but it was deeply refreshing to watch a movie that had that, that wasn't afraid to, to set things up that way. And it doesn't, cause it doesn't happen. You're supposed to have a good, you're supposed to be a good guy. Well, and yeah. And th- th- I really up. admired that about Emerald too, where it was like, so yeah, all the men in this film are flawed and bad to some extent, but also every single character, like that is a horrible, horrible moment. What Carrie Mulligan's character does to Alison Bree's character is unforgivable. Even though Alison Bree's character did unforgivable things to Carrie, Emerald is like very interested in looking at this whole concept of revenge and being like, is it okay to ever do this to someone? And the answer is no. Morally, what Carrie does to Allison's character is like, it's immoral. There's no (laughs) excuse for it. I don't care how traumatized you are. And and that's really interesting to me because you want to root for Carrie. (laughs) I know. And you recognize, oh, you can't because this is really, oh, yeah, this has warped her into something that there is no, you can't really be an avenging angel. You will... Lose, you do lose yourself. You lose your soul when you decide Which, that this is how you want to function. I think the whole reason Emerald is interested in that, just based on the interviews I've heard with her, is because to her, the whole thing is the original crime. Right. You can't undo that ever, no matter how badly she wants to avenge her friend and punish her friend's rapist. She can't ever fully do that. So her whole mission is pointless. Right. And she can't see that. And that's what the tragedy is. Um, So for Emerald, the whole issue is the rape and the rapist and anybody who facilitated the rape happening. And that includes every dude in the room who was like laughing, including Bo Burnham's character, no matter how likable you find him to be years from years after the crime, you know? Right. Right. Um, Oh, so as I said, my number one, my first cow. Um, right. Uh, and then, so I guess into my number two, I picked. Oh, wait, yeah, sorry. I was going to say, I have my number two, uh, which is a different, another sort of slightly left field pick, but one I think is truly one of the most amazing documentaries I've seen in, in a long time. Uh, Collective, it's a Romanian movie uh, about in, how investigative journalists after in the wake of a devastating nightclub fire in October of 2015, that uh, 
killed 27 people and injured 180. But over the following few months, 37 more people died. And through their work ends up exposing like massive national scale healthcare fraud, corruption, and, uh, you know, general bad action. And it's, it's just an incredible feat. And it's the sort of, it has the element because it's about investigative journalists it, it you know, one of the reasons why I put it on the list because I'm a sucker for these. And, um, but also it is fucking dangerous to expose corruption in a place like Romania. <laughs> so yeah. the left, like the stakes are so high, even once you, you know, even after you start with the dozens of people die as a result of a fire, like that alone would be enough of a story to then have it. That's the entry point into this massive, massive scandal. Um, it's just incredibly suspenseful, incredibly moving, and um, you know, and it's a portrait of the kind of journalists that often get kind of mentioned when people talk about like certainly now we're doing online Twitter cancel culture bullshit. We're like, oh, what about the people that are exposing corruption and are being like targeted by governments? Like these are the kinds of people who are doing that work. And um it's just spectacular. Like to watch it unfold every time you think they've hit the big story another like another thing drops and they can take it a little bit further and a little bit further and a little bit further um i just can't recommend it enough it's a hard watch but uh it is worth it i think and i haven't been able to stop thinking about it since i watched it a few weeks ago it's on hulu right now um just you know a movie that deserves a hell of a lot more attention um just because it's fantastic. Just uh, yeah, I might watch this tonight because I've just heard such high praise for it. I've heard yeah, exactly what you're saying. It's very heavy, but it is just spectacularly done. Um, so I, you know, in general, I feel like I did a really shitty job this year of watching the documentaries that are um, have been nominated for the Oscars. So maybe I'll try to play catch up with that. Um, in the lead up to the awards. But yeah, as I said, my number two, Promising Young Woman, my number one was First Cow. Wow. We actually ended up, I'm pretty, pretty similar. Proud. Yeah. But also like, I'm proud of how many places we differed and how this turned out. I, I like it. I feel like uh, it proves we are exact, like we're exactly the type of people who would do an hour's long discussion of a top 10 list, like top 10 list of 2020 yeah this this feels very on brand for us um yeah and this will also be my first official test for everybody who said i would be okay with a purely pop culture uh episode because guess what uh mama doesn't have time to do an hour and a half episode today so i gotta call it right now so that is our top 10 Films of 2020 slash early 2021. Hashtag light treason pod for your thoughts. What did we miss? What would be on your top 10 list? Uh, as I said, I know at least my list is highly flawed, very skewed. I know there's room for improvement. So I want feedback at least. So hit me up on Twitter. Let me know your thoughts. Oh, um, I want to know too. I'm, yeah. I want to know what, what stuff I, I didn't get to because when I wasn't watching the 
the movies on this list and a few others, I was spending all of my time watching every shitty horror movie that I could possibly find for free. So I know that I've missed a lot of stuff. <laughs> Me too. Me uh, too. I've just been on Shutter all the time. So, and guess what, guys? I also had a bunch of other film news that we didn't get a chance to get to. So I think we're officially a pop culture show. <laughs> I think it happened when we weren't looking, but uh, please follow Meredith on Twitter at Meredith L. Clark. You can go to patreon.com slash Allison Kilkenny. There's bonus episodes up over there, bonus content for as little as $5 a month. You keep this whole operation going, or you can go to lighttreason.news and smash the donate button. Somebody asked me what the difference was between those two things. Nothing. You just get more contact content over at Patreon. The full answer is that Patreon started after I had already set up the website. So that's why I have two different ways you can contribute to the show. Um, But yeah, thanks so much for listening. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your weekend. And while you're at it, stay inside and cause a little trouble. 